This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Good morning. It is the Feast of St. Stephen. Uh, no, Feast of St. John, St. John. <sighs> Tired still. And no, I'm not better, but my voice sounds fine. But that's because I drank my coffee before going live, which helped to clear things up a bit. If you watch the live stream I was on last night with a, for, with on the Avoiding Babylon channel, my voice sounded pretty bad, partially because I was just up really late and just tired. Towards the end of the day, my voice just goes away when I'm sick the way that I am now. But today we've got news about uh, more bishops stepping forward. Some of them saying things too spicy to say on YouTube. Um, I have a letter from a priest who needs to remain anonymous that was sent to me, but he perfectly encapsulates the problems that we have with the um, document that came from Fernandez and Francis. And then I'm going to end on a positive note today because there is something, oh, there is some actual legit good news. It's not exactly like, you know, earth shaking good news or anything. But it's one of those signs of hope kind of things if you appreciate liturgical beauty. So let's start here, though, with something that I've noticed. And that's we are getting numerous reports of priests telling the parishioners to not watch or listen to reports about the blessings document, especially from those who, quote, bash the Pope. Weirdly, this is often coming from priests who actually agree with much of what we say. But they tell you not to pay attention anyway. The problem is that most of us who, quote, bash the Pope are just citing the words and leadership of good bishops and priests who have taken a public stand against that evil document, who say we are not going to go further. We're not going to adopt this. We are forbidding our priests from engaging in these things that Rome is allowing. And by saying that, these, these otherwise decent priests are saying, don't listen to those, the bishops of Africa, which I hope he did. they didn't mean that, or Bishop Schneider, or Bishop Mueller, when Cardinal Burke eventually chimes in, because he'll have to, to not listen to him, you begin to see the pattern here, that we're not to listen to the best of our shepherds, including entire conferences and, from the looks of it, entire continent of bishops, a few stragglers notwithstanding, that we're not to listen to them. Have you heard this yourself? Have you encountered this in the, from your priest who tells you, don't pay attention to this stuff, Yada, yada, yada. Have you seen that? Um, Deborah says she thinks the uh, Jesuits went bad long before the Belladad. Probably. I mean, there are there's definitely some evidence that the uh, that Leo the Thirteenth was writing his anti-modernist encyclicals in the 1880s and 1890s regarding things Jesuits were saying. There's some evidence for that. Um, but yeah. Traditionalist Catholic says the only Malachi Martin book he has is his one on exorcism. That is, um, that's very good. Uh, I mean, it's the not the easiest one to read. I would recommend uh, Vatican is always my go-to for starting. So it's, it's a faction story. So it's if the names have been changed, a couple of events have been added in for dramatic purpose, but like ninety-five percent of the contents actually happened, and it goes over the details of the post-war church all the way to the nineteen eighties, and then he tried to predict into the future with what would happen to John Paul II. He got that wrong because he was predicting into the future. But um, 
it's a very good book for going over all the problems that were going on at the time. And it becomes very odd because most of that stuff looks like it'd be ripped right out of the headlines of the contemporary things going on in the church. <laughs> Anthony from uh, Avoiding Babylon is up bright and early to get his news. Well, I was on his live stream last night um, over at Avoiding Babylon. Go check that out. I sent a link this morning to patrons and channel members. So you should have access to that. Just check your messages or whatever, however it is you get these from me. And you'll find a link there. The rest of you, I, I'll try to put a link in the in the comments after this is done. Um, but yeah, so have you heard that though? That priests, otherwise decent priests saying, tune out this news. That seems weird to me because the the document is going to cause more scandal than anything we've seen yet. More scandal than anything. And it's going to be implemented in a parish near you. So it would probably be a good idea for people to not tune this stuff out so they can be braced for what's coming. Let me know in the comments if you've seen that. Um, James says in the chat, I'm afraid to confront my priest. He hasn't implemented any of the evils. Right. And the problem you've got here is a lot of the good priests have to be careful. And I'm going to, one of the things I have for you is a letter from a good priest who had to remain anonymous. But again, he's diagnosing the problem in the church with this document better than almost anybody I've seen. Deborah says she's getting sick and tired of hearing Pope splinters calling anyone who criticizes or laments the Pope's documents or rather his policies as schismatic or worse. This is, uh, yeah, and it's 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 really it's really a remarkable thing to witness. So I'm going to just go right here. We got a um, we have a, more reports of good bishops standing up. And the first one I'll briefly talk about is from Uruguay. You have the story of Cardinal Daniel Sterla telling the Uruguayan media that the document asks for the impossible. I would pull, pull it up on screen, but the whole thing's in Spanish. So um, I had to get a rudimentary translation for this here. I'll have links to the actual articles, though, in my show notes at returntotradition.org, including an archived version of this article, because they wanted you to become a member of their website or something. I don't know. But here is what he said when he was asked about the evil blessings decreed by the secular media. And that article goes into a lot more than just this topic. But this is the only part that's relevant for us. So Cardinal Daniel Sterla from Uruguay said, quote, I think it was not a topic to come up now at Christmas, meaning it was not appropriate to bring this up at Christmas. It caught my attention powerfully because it is a controversial issue and it is dividing waters within the church. It is clear that a priest blesses all people. I have now been in the state-run facilities and I have blessed everyone who was there. If people come to ask me for my blessing, I always give it. I remember when the law about uh, those confused about the immutable reality of the flesh was being discussed that we were in a procession in the San Ignacio Paris and some James Martin types came to ask me for my blessing and I gave them the blessing. It's another thing to bless a James Martin par pairing, however. There it is no longer the blessing of the, of the people, but of the pairing. And the entire tradition of the church, even a document from two years ago, says that it's not possible to do this. Furthermore, this instruction or this document that has come out creates confusion because it says you can bless, but not through a rite. In short, what I believe is that most people can be blessed, but couples as such as couples cannot. With couples that conform to the law of God, what exists is the sacrament of holy matrimony in the traditional sense. It's a, The document is a no, but yes, and a yes, but no. The document says that it does not change the doctrine of the church. Given the lack of clarity of the document from my reading, I understand that we must continue with the practice of the church that has had until now, which is to bless all the people who ask for a blessing, but not to bless the pairings of the identical type of flesh. If you want, 
If what you want is to get closer to people and make the uh, James Martin crowd feel part of the church, that's fine with me because the church is for everyone. But there are certain rules. An unmarried couple is also not blessed. Unions that the church itself says that are not in accordance with God's plan cannot be blessed. What happens is that the same document says that there cannot be a ritual, that it cannot be done publicly either. It creates a confusing situation. When you bless people, you don't ask what their situation is. And it is always done and to whomever. We will continue with the same practice until it becomes clear. The document has generated division. In the churches of Africa, they have said that in their countries, no. In the church, there is likely there's there is like a hierarchy of documents, he says here on the authority of it. This document is not a pronouncement by the Pope that has dogmatic value. Two years ago, a document from the Holy Seed said just the opposite, too. You have to wait a little for the waters to take proper course, end quote. And I want to mention something here. Kennedy Hall went over this because, you know, I am not a speaker of languages other than English and even barely of English. But uh, Kennedy speaks French and some other Latin-based languages. And he points out that the word blessing, what really he's talking about is a, a benediction. And when you break down the word benediction, you, you get to the word bene from Latin. And if you start looking at languages like French or other Latin, more closely Latin-rooted languages, you start to see that the word good is uh, derived from the word bene in Latin. So in Spanish is bien and some other languages, it's all very sim similar. A benediction is literally to, to make something good through God. That's what a benediction is. So to offer a benediction of the kind we're talking about here is an ontological impossibility. It's a metaphysical impossibility. It is something that the church simply cannot do because what we're talking about here has been described by sacred scripture as being a sin that cries out to heaven. That's what we're talking about here. And it's that, that is why that according to this, the, the Cardinal Daniel Sterla from Uruguay, he says bishops are free to ignore the decree because the decree is not backed by a dogmatic declaration. And by the way, before all this happened, whenever traditionalists said the same thing about other things, we were called schismatics by the Pope's planners. But now we have cardinals who pretty clearly aren't, you know, traditionalists saying the same thing. Checking the chat here just to make sure. <laughs> yeah, that's also the uh, part of the thing, Maria. We're getting a de redefinition of what sin is, and that's a really big problem. But Laura says, yeah, no kidding. Before Christmas, distractions and chaos. I mean, look, a lot of people in the days before Christmas and days after are not paying attention. That's part of what this is. But now this story was so big that people, it did cause people to pay attention. I saw it my own numbers on videos and things. I can tell you, people were paying attention. Yeah, traditionalist Catholic says, bene equals good, dicta equals word. Right. It's a declaration that something is good on a divine level. Think about that for a moment. <sighs> anyway, we're going to, let's get back to this. Um, the, we get in a, a different take, a spicier take that comes from a bishop in Malawi. You've probably seen this floating around social media by now. I even shared it on my Facebook page because you can say more on Facebook than you can on this platform. And he said things that you cannot repeat here. Just you can't. Even if I were to use the dressed up language I often use to cover spicier topics. But that bishop said the following, basically, quote, 
We have no choice. We cannot allow such an offensive and apparently blasphemous declaration to be implemented in our diocese. It is very sad for me that for the first time in the history of the church, a document released by the Holy See, signed by the Holy Father, is rejected by his fellow bishops and publicly rejected. Our major concern with this declaration is that it looks to us like heresy. It reads like heresy, and it affects heresy because it asks us to bless two people of the double S type as individuals, but not as a couple who the previous night engaged in activities associated with being a couple presented themselves to us as a couple are blessed as individuals, but then they leave our presence as a couple. They go back to their home as a couple. They, they sleep as a couple would, but the document says they are not blessed as a couple, although they appear to have been blessed as a couple. How could this not be changing the authentic teaching of the church? End quote. How not indeed. Thank you for the super chat, Anthony. It is, it is appreciated. But yes, that's the one of the bishops from Malawi. And I've got to tell you that that's that take is all over the place. It is a one of the spicier takes. You you'll see like his full address and the video of it on any social media platform you go by go around because he encapsulates what's going on, the concern that people have. The document looks like heresy, because it is. And it's asking for heresy to be normalized in the church. All right. Um, The document blatantly ignores James 5.12. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's the thing. Like, probably tomorrow I'm going to go over uh, a new development in this, which is that uh, the poet cardinal behind this, Cardinal Fernandez, is now on a tour of Germany trying to rein the German bishops in. It's as if he didn't understand that by issuing this document they were opening Pandora's box, that they thought they, that they could meet people halfway or something. They could have the best of both worlds on this. And sometimes you just have to say no or just say yes. And they can't do that. <sighs> Damien Keller says, I'm still observing a lot of coincidental or more so providential convergences. A hundred years since Fatima 2017, a hundred years of Pope Leo the 13th and a hundred years of Tui. Right. The hundred year period that everyone talks about. We don't know when that started. My suspicion is that it started with sister Lucia being told I me mean, the analogy of the, of the the Kings of France and the sacred heart in which she was told in 1929. I suspect that's when it started because it would go a long way to explain things that happened thereafter. Traditionalist Catholic says the Bishop of Malawi was apologizing to his scandalized and offended flock. That was the gist of the sermon. And it's unfortunate that a Bishop has to do that on behalf of the, you know, apologize for things that came out of the Holy See. If anything, if that ever happens, it should almost be the other way around. You know, a Bishop says something that's completely just not in keeping with what the church teaches. And then the Holy Father steps forward and says, no, this is the truth. And, you know, apologizes for it and then reprimands the Bishop or worse if needed. Anthony reminds us, by the way, Christmas is not over. This is true. We've still got about 10 days left of Christmas. It goes until the 6th of the next month. Please remember to keep the holiday spirit going. Dory says, yeah, her, her bad priest told like, again, not, not my characterization of him, told me many months ago not to even listen to you and Taylor Marshall. We'll see. Well, it gra- I gratefully obeyed. I bore, she obeyed our Lord. Again, I mean, I find it odd that on this issue in particular, priests who agree with us are telling people not to listen to us, even though I'm literally just telling you what all these bishops are saying. 
Harween did not listen to these good bishops. <sighs> Alexis reminds us that as Catholics, we can't do anything what the higher-ups are doing. If we know better than, than this to be sin, we must pray for those who rejoice in this and focus on Jesus on the cross. We should also remember to pray for everybody. This is why I've been lately ending my live streams with pray for everybody that we speak about today, especially if they're a cause of like anger or something for you, to not let the anger sit inside you, but actually use it as a moment of, to, of charity to pray for them, that they get the insight they need to pull themselves out of their error. Um, let's move on though. Um, but the question is, how is this not a change in church teaching? If, if, as that bishop said, we are asked to essentially ignore reality. And that's a good question. And I'm going to give you now the something here from the um, that anonymous priest I mentioned at the beginning, a priest who has to stay anonymous. And you'll see why when you hear this letter. Rufiducia and the grace of Christmas. My dear friends, I am in the 40th year of my monastic life. Even before I entered the monastery, an old monk told me that Satan always stirs up some big ado before the great feasts, especially Christmas, in order to distract us from the graces that God wants to give us when we celebrate them. This year confirms once again that the ancient enemy is just as boring as usual and always resorts to the same old tricks. At the same time, his machinations always work against him if we know how to take things in stride and counterattack. The religious press this week was dominated by two pieces of troubling news. The first was the conviction of Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who at one time held the third most prominent position in the Roman Curia. He was found guilty of taking money that was not his from church funds and condemned to five and a half years in time. A very large fine and being permanently barred from holding public office. It's the first time in history the Vatican Court has actually convicted a cardinal. But that shocking news, which I suspect most of you were not aware, even aware of, was left in the shadows. <laughs> was this intentional? Perhaps. Thanks to the much more sensational news that came to us, the zealous new prefect for the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith, Cardinal Tuco Fernandez, and which the world press expressed in terms such as this headline from the New York Times, Popes allows priests to bless a double S couples. Now, I'm not going to burden you with the details of the document called Fiducia Supplicans. It is available for those who, are to, who care to read it. But if it interests you, do read the document itself very attentively, and do not be content with the tendacious summaries given in the media. Once you have re read it, read Cardinal Mueller's critique, published just a couple of days ago. His eminence with his usual mastery of theological concepts demonstrates an intrinsic contradiction in the document and issues a demand for another surprise clarification. Modernist bishops immediately praise the document as being a step in the right direction, and modernist priests such as Father Jimmy Martin made haste to publicize the, quote, private blessing he gave to a double-S couple the same day the document came out. On the other side, we have seen a number of bishops, but even entire bishops' conferences, publicly denounce the practice and ban their priests from giving such blessings. Some of the bishops go so far as to clearly state that the Holy See is not walking in the truth of the gospel on this question. All of this is available in the press, and you can read it if you are interested. The reality is that it has always been possible for the, in the church for a, a priest to bless a repentant sinner or a repentant couple who have decided to change their life. It has always been possible for a priest to bless a person or a couple who, though not yet repentant, sincerely asks for the grace to obtain repentance. But what is not possible is to bless a couple living in sin and not wanting to change and asking to be blessed together because there are some things in their lives that are good. Such a blessing has always been considered as of necessity condoning their life together. What I would like to reflect upon with you, however, and which I deem it my duty to make very clear, are the underlying points of Catholic teaching 
that seem to be left out of the debate. The failure to teach them consistently suffices to explain why we have gotten ourselves here in the first place. 1. The first point is what Pius XII identified several decades ago as the loss of the sense of sin. More specifically, we could speak of a loss of an abhorrence for sin. When it comes to double-S relationships or irregular unions, what tra traditional Catholic terminology refers to as uh, a word I can't say on YouTube, but what really when it comes to any sin at all, what our day and age is lacking most is the sense of sin, the abhorrence for sin. Abhorrence or disgust for sin is something that at one time was inculcated in every Catholic child by loving and faith-filled parents. Recall Blanche de Castile telling her son, the future Saint Louis IX, that she would rather see him expired at her feet than to know that he had committed a single mortal sin. Recall, too, those words of the prayer of St. Ignatius in the third exercise of the first week of the spiritual exercises. I will ask for a deep knowledge of my sins and a feeling of abhorrence for them, an understanding of the disorder of my actions, that filled with horror of them. I may amend my life and put it in order, a knowledge of the world that filled with horror I may put away from me all that is worldly and vain. This abhorrence for sin is what is conspicuously absent from all the recent official documents of the Church. It leads to the logical conclusion that the James Martin sin and the associated sins are only minor canonical irregularities that can somehow be ironed over and sorted out with a loving attentiveness to persons. They seem to suggest that if we have just enough pastoral love for persons, somehow the problem of sin will disappear. As if we could possibly have more pastoral love than our blessed Lord did when he told the lady, go and sin no more. This attitude had led to what I sincerely think will one day be recognized and condemned as the heresy of pastoralism, in virtue of which pastors are inclined, if not required, to overlook ontological realities and define dogma in favor of a vague and distorted concept of mercy, forgetting that the first mercy to a sinner is to show him his sin so as to pull him back from the way of perdition before it is too late. The second point follows from the first, namely, a lack of confidence in the power of grace to avoid sin in the first place. The real fiducia, the real confidence we must have, is that God's grace is so powerful that he can pull us out of sin and keep us in his grace if we correspond with the actual graces he gives us continually. It is not and cannot be a brazen confidence that somehow God will accept me as I am with my sins and save me without my cooperation with grace. Such a concept is blasphemous and injurious to the divine majesty. Far from being part of the virtue of hope, such as such a false fiducia is in reality the vice of presumption. This was essentially the error of Luther, who had despaired of having the grace to live a holy life, and so invented his doctrine of what is known in Latin as simul justus et peccator, that is to say, that we are sinners and holy at the same time. Because we can do nothing to obtain and stay in God's grace, God simply covers us from the outside with his own holiness and pretends that we are holy, just as a layer of snow in winter covers a dunghill, but the dung remains under the snow. Such is an opposition with Catholic dogma, for which a soul in God's grace is really and truly made holy, and has every grace it needs to stay in that state if it cooperates with it through the sacraments, prayer, and good works. That leads us to the third point, which is the frequent confusion regarding use of the term sinner. One often gets the impression that there is no real difference between, for example, the humble nun striving to overcome her imperfections, the dodgy merchant who steals a bit here and there from his clients, the doctor who expires the most innocent in order to not lose his job. We are all sinners, they say. Well, yes, but for God's sake, let's define what we mean by sinner. To lump every sinner into the same category is a grave ambiguity, which cannot be of God. The sins of the flesh have always been considered to be sins of exceptional gravity, 
particularly offensive to the divine majesty, to persist in pretending that they are not and that somehow we are only dealing with a canonical technicality cannot be of God. It can only be of Satan, the father of lies and deception. The fourth point, which is even more fundamental, is the equally rampant heresy of universalism. That is to say, the belief. For it is a belief, it is actually the only belief of many in the church today, that all people are going to heaven anyway, no matter how they live. And so we might as well be nice and make life comfortable for everybody. I would simply like to remind everyone that it is not possible to be a universalist and to be a Catholic. For the same reason that there are few errors that are so directly opposed to almost every page of sacred scripture and the teachings of the church fathers. I would go even further and say that there is no more dangerous person on earth than a Catholic, especially if he is a prelate, who is a universalist. I would by far prefer a person with no religion and no moral compass at all than a prelate who is convinced that no matter what people do, no matter what they do or say, they are all going to heaven anyway. Why is that so dangerous? Quite simply because when we are dealing with those who profess no religion, we are already on our guard that there might be some moral compass that they are not for them, nor can they hide behind a white collar or a pectoral cross. Furthermore, not believing in an afterlife, they must have their satisfaction here and now and are therefore quite conscious of the reality of human justice. Whereas the man of faith who thinks that nothing matters because tomorrow he will be in heaven with his victims is capable of anything. That itself is enough to explain the moral scandals in the Catholic clergy in recent decades. That alone is capable of explaining the tampering with Catholic dogma and morals, examples of which are given to us almost daily under the present regime. That alone is enough to explain the utter disillusion of Catholic moral theology by making the individual conscience the ultimate norm of everything. That alone explains the impasse we now find ourselves in. It is this era of universalism which makes possible such statements as, God never condemns anyone, or God never refuses to bless those who come to him. Really? Where did that come from? The truth is that God never condemns a soul that turns to him with sorrow for sin and a desire to amend their life. God never refuses to bless a soul that comes to him asking for the grace to repent and change their life. Oh, but God does condemn those who reject him by refusing to make efforts to change. He does condemn those who are so arrogant as to think that they can make up their own rules and God will allow them into heaven anyway. There's a frightening passage in the second book of Maccabees concerning the wicked king Antiochus, who in the text says, Pray to God of whom he was not to obtain mercy. Weigh those terms with me for a moment. He prayed to God of whom he was not to obtain mercy. He prayed, but his prayer was not heard. He came to God for a blessing, and the blessing was refused. He was condemned, even though he prayed. Why? Because his heart was not right with God. This is why St. Alphonsus Liguori, patron saint of moral theologians, was able to write, Without doubt, God's mercy is infinite, but the acts of his mercy and consequently the graces of forgiveness have their limits. God is merciful, therefore he is just. I am, said the Lord one day to St. Bridget, just and merciful, but sinners only regard me as merciful. They only want to see, remarks St. Basil, only one half of God, because he is good, he is also just. Mercy is promised to those who fear God, and not to those who abuse mercy. His mercy, cries the Divine Mother, and her sublime canticle is poured out on those who fear him. As for the stubborn, they are threatened with his justice. Now, says St. Augustine, if God does not deceive when he promises, he does not deceive when he threatens either. Faithful in his promises, he is also faithful in his threats. It is not God, but the devil who pushes you to sin through the hope of mercy. But there is a final element lacking in all this, and that is the one that we will be confronted with tonight at the Midnight Mass. It is one that any sincere observer will notice when contemplating the major scene, and it is this. God loves chastity. He loves purity. When he came to earth, he came through a virginal mother and a virginal foster father. His conception was virginal, his birth was virginal, and his entire life will be virginal. And he will call his apostles and all their successors in the priesthood to a life of celibacy, so as to be as close to the model of chaste virginity as possible. 
All this is right there in our faces. It is readily available to anyone with enough sincerity to open their eyes without having tinted spectacles on. My dear friends, let us have true fiducia, true confidence in our blessed Savior. When will our beloved come to restore all things? When will this awful nightmare be over? That we do not know, but one thing is sure, and tonight will remind us all over again. The Savior is already among us, and whoever speaks him, seeks him with a true, humble, loving heart of necessity finds him, but never without his mother. That is where we want to be now and always in Bethlehem, with the infant God. May that grace be granted to us. If it is, it will always be a truly blessed Christmas. So I want to address something here. Um, my wife, we may have heard her trying to tell me about this while that was playing. Um, but we've already had a report of this happening in Galveston, right? Where the priest took the most uh, James Martin interpretation of this and did it just privately. And when he was blessing was clearly the uh, secular parody of holy matrimony. That's what he was doing. And to say they didn't know this was going to happen, that Rome didn't know that this was going to happen is a remarkable coping mechanism for people. I mean, look right now, Cardinal Fernandez is on a, Paul is on a correction tour of Germany and he's, he's and it's, it's probably just for show. It has to be because they, you can tell if you read his documents, the documents that Cardinal Fernandez has issued, the man is extremely intelligent. He knows what he's doing. Everything he writes is very carefully worded and it's, it's purposely ambiguous. He is probably one of the most capable modernists in the church. And this is why you should keep a, your eyes on him or almost in anybody else right now. Other than of course, the man he answers to Francis. I have a bit of positive news. I'm going to end on just because this is a, uh, not a whole lot of that these days, but uh, for those of you who love liturgical beauty, we have this from father Z. He reports that a magnificent new altar at the fraternity of St. Vincent Ferrer, which are a group, which is in France. They're a traditional group of Dominicans. They have a magnificent new altar here. He says as Christmas approaches, because he wrote this a couple of days ago, it seems strange to write that we have in need of some good news. Good news has come, however, from the fraternity of St. Vincent Ferrer, a traditional group of Dominicans. They recently completed a new altar for the convent of St. Thomas Aquinas, and it was solemnly consecrated. Now, if you watched or went to the consecration of the um, of the Immaculata with the, for the SSPX, you know that these things take a long time <laughs> to do. But this project was three years in the making. And so here is, you know... Just some of these images here are are extraordinary, right? This is, but that is a beautiful high altar. If you are not familiar with the traditional form of the liturgy, this is one of the things that the uh, the so-called reformers of Vatican II took from you. It is your right to have within the means of your parish things of, I would say, comparable beauty. This is a master crafted altar, but there is a, there is a historic shrine of the, I think it's a, the Sacred Heart Mission, about 45 minutes from me. And they're high, they still have their high altar, the preconciliar 19th century high altar there. And it's absolutely beautiful. This sort of thing is what was taken from us. So, it's, so, it's, so it is incredibly good news when we get reports of these being built in places. Seemingly, I won't say in defiance of Traditionis Custodis, but you know that somebody in Rome is going to pay attention and go, well, where did they get the resources for that? Why are they putting that in? Yada, yada, yada. But it is absolutely beautiful. 
All right. So at this point, I will field questions from the chat if there are any so that we can go. And before I wrap all of this up, I will have all this stuff in my show notes today at returntotradition.org. As usual, um, probably here. And it's a little shortly after 5 a.m. Central Time because I have a video that you will probably want to see going live at that time. And it takes some processing time to download the uh, my own live stream and things and get it over and do all the things I need to do for that. But um, the daily video is about Padre Pio and a prophecy he had. And this is one of those ones that nobody denies he had. But unlike the Three Days of Darkness one, which is heavily disputed. I even make a note of that in the video today. That, that Three Days of Darkness one is heavily disputed by people who are not just skeptical about the three days of darkness. They have reasons to be skeptical of it, but this on this one, there is no, no hesitation. Everybody agrees. That he probably, that he absolutely said this is that Dominican, that Dominican church is in France. Um, it is. That's I, I wish I had some, something like that to show you from the United States, but it's from France. Traditionalist Catholic says he wonders if the Vatican's response will come after Christmas tide, maybe hit us on Epiphany. Um, if you mean like to that to that altar, or you mean all to these bishops suddenly just telling people to ignore Rome, quite possibly. Either way, am I feeling better now? I mean, my voice is uh, sounds better probably to you, but it's marginally better at best than how it was a couple of days ago. Um, let's see. I just saw a prayer request. Here, so we'll put it on the screen there. There you go. Just uh, please, please pray for Cindy Rose's intention. Um, Mike says, all this must have been what Leo the Thirteenth saw in his vision about Christ giving Satan 100 years to try to destroy the church. Did the 100 years start in the 60s? I hope not. I don't believe that it started in the 60s. I tend to think that it was it started when uh, Sister Lucia was given the warning from our Lord in 1929. Which means we're in for some uh, next a few interesting years coming up. All right, folks, you have yourselves a blessed day. I'm going to try to get a little rest to get better from what I'm dealing with. And if you want the sources for this, other than the anonymous priest thing, I'm going to try to keep him anonymous. They'll be in my show notes at returntotradition.org sometime in the 5 a.m. Central Time hour. Anyway, thank you, folks, for tuning in. You have a blessed day. <laughs>